Thank you, Pastor Chris and uh, worship team. I love that that song. I, I love the lyric, uh, rich in love and slow to anger. It comes right out of Exodus 34, God's own self-revelation. It's one thing to sing lyrics about God that people have written, but when you're singing lyrics that are actually what God says about himself, I'm, I'm uh, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. It's uh, yeah, really powerful stuff. So. Hope you're doing well this evening and uh, looking forward to the next uh, installment of our marriage series. Uh, just a quick word about, I think it was the first, uh, the first week I mentioned, if you have any questions, specific questions that you'd like us to address, uh, you can email those to the office or you can uh, get those to me somehow. I've gotten... Uh, maybe three of those. Uh, so I do want to, I will take some time. We'll take some time in the, la- the last week or we'll extend this for one week and we'll try to answer some of those questions. They're really good questions. I mean, the three that I've received have been excellent. I think um, would be helpful for us to address those broadly, uh, you know, so we can talk about those from a biblical perspective. But there is time if you have, um, you know, if you have a question about marriage or even about your own you know, personal situation that you, you'd like us to kind of shed biblical light on or talk about, you can still email the church office. Um, I think it's info at capshaw.org, as I recall. And uh, we'll, we'll make sure to include that in, in the questions uh, that we try to cover toward the end. So uh, this, is, uh, this is week five in our Redeeming Marriage series. And uh, the first week... I kind of laid the the biblical foundation for oneness. What does it mean? What does oneness mean uh, in the scriptures? And then we've and then the the series really unfolds uh, by way of seven commitments. And so these are commitments that we say they're actually they flow out of the gospel. So they're they're things that we agree to do in order to strengthen our marriage. We're going to commit to doing, um, but they're. Uh, there, there are things we, we commit to do, but they're all in light of what's been done for us by Christ. You know, so, so that's why that's the way that we're looking at those. Um, let me just by way of review give you the first three. So, this is the fifth week of the series. So we've had four weeks. The first week was the kind of the foundation, the introduction, and then we've had uh, commitment number one, which was we will give ourselves to a regular lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. And uh, John Kirkpatrick did a wonderful job of teaching that week and explaining kind of what that meant. And, you know, when I do, when I do pre-marriage counseling, I think maybe I've said this to you before, but every couple wants to know going in, like, in fact, we were, Janine and I were on a bus somewhere just last week in our vacation, and someone, it was three couples who were newlyweds, and they said, they said, what's the secret? Right? Everybody wants to know what the secret is. Of course they do, right? We want to know what, what's the secret to a long marriage. And these three couples asked us, what's the secret? And we didn't really have time to get into it. Janine had the perfect response, hang on, uh, which I think is, you know, fairly accurate. But, uh, but if you look at the secret, it's not, you know, it's, it's, you can say, do little things differently, you know, but, but really the, the secret, it's not really a secret, but what I tell couples is here's, if you want a, a fruitful, intimate, enjoyable marriage, establish a pattern of confession, repentance, forgiveness, and restoration. That's really the key. 
Now, of course, Christ-centered home, rooted in the Scriptures and, and all those things. But in terms of your regular rhythms with each other, establishing a pattern of confession, going to each other, you know, confessing your sin, admitting your wrong, and so on, and then repenting, which just means with, with a spirit of contrition and brokenness, turning from that, and then forgiving one another, and then being restored. And so that's key. And, and as I said, we talked about that first commitment, which John did such a terrific job on. We will give ourselves to a regular lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. And then the second and third uh, commitments, which Pastor Adam covered, um, we will make growth and change our daily agenda. So looking to see uh, and making this commitment to continue to grow and move forward. Um, and then the third commitment, we will work together to build a sturdy bond of trust. So those are the first three commitments. And again, these, these commitments uh, you know, come out of the, the book that we're using as a resource, Paul Tripp's uh, Redeeming the Realities of Marriage. So this morning, we're going to look at this. This is our fourth commitment. Um, we will commit to building a relationship of love. Now, that assumes a couple of things, doesn't it? It assumes, but we talk about building sort of present active uh, verb. It assumes that building this relationship of love is actually a, a lifelong, it's a process. So we don't ever get to the place in our marriage where we say, okay, we've, we've sufficiently built our love. We can kind of put the tools away, stop doing the work. We're there. No, it assumes building a, 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 this, this faithful uh, relationship of love assumes that Again, it's not something we ever really fully arrive at, but something we have to continue to work at. Now, the second thing that this assumes, if we're going to build a relationship of love, here's the second thing it assumes. It assumes that we know we're all talking about the same thing when we talk about love. And that's, that's a really big assumption, isn't it? It's a really big assumption. Uh, when I, in my previous uh, post, in my previous ministry context, because we had we had more, more staff and different assignments and delegation. I, I had a part of my week each week devoted to writing. And so so every week I would write a an article or essay or something, and it would be circulated to the church body and then some other folks who had asked to be part of it. And um, and I loved to write and, and was gl- was glad to do it. But one of the things I noticed, I would I would spend, sometimes I would spend, I don't know, sometimes I would spend three or four hours, sometimes all day writing. And I hardly ever got any feedback, which I don't, I don't, I didn't need the feedback to like to say you're doing a good job. But I, I did often wonder, like, is anybody reading this? Because I'm putting this time right. Does anybody ever read this? And so I didn't get a lot of feedback until this one particular article that I wrote. And the title of it was Bruce Jenner and the Nature of Love. And I couldn't believe, you know, if I ever thought that nobody was reading, that was corrected when I wrote this particular article. I got all kinds of feedback. I got very, uh, I got feedback that was uh, commending, that was grateful. I got feedback that was angry, feedback that was frustrating. So a wide array of, you know, sort of responses. And what I really tried to do was, and this was the same week that, uh, you know, Bruce Jenner had announced that he was going to be called Caitlin and so on. And, and so I tr- what I tried to do in that article was really define 
What is love? What are we talking about? And here's why. Let me, I'll read, I want to read the first two paragraphs of kind of how I started that article. And then, and then what I want to talk about, if we're going to build a relationship of love, we have to be on the same page as it relates to what is love. So here's, here's what I wrote. What a rapidly changing culture we live in. On Monday of this week, former Olympic gold medalist Bruce Jenner announced to the world that he was now Caitlin and should be referred to as such. In a few subsequent hours, Caitlin's, which I put in quotation marks, new Twitter account would garner 2.33 million followers, just in a few hours. Everybody, it seems, wants to know what the one-time world's greatest athlete is thinking and feeling. Never before has Jenner been so popular, whereas he once graced the box of Wheaties, Jenner now appears on the front page of the landmark fashion magazine, Vanity Fair. I haven't read too many responses to Bruce's big reveal, and I'm not terribly interested in entering into the fray, but I have noticed a a disturbing trend that I believe needs to be addressed from a pastoral perspective, and it's this. Everyone seems to be hailing Bruce as a hero, a courageous individual, an American icon. Even Christians are saying these things, and For those who are less inclined to bestow upon Bruce such accolades, they are scolded with the questions, with the question, where's the love? Where's the love? It's a fair question, where is the love? But it prompts an even better one, and that is, what does it mean to truly love someone? So now you could get an idea why I got so much feedback on this because it was people were forwarding it to their friends, to their enemies, to my enemies, and so on. And so I started getting all this pushback on this thing. But what I try to do is really define what is love? What does it really mean to love someone? And, and if the commitment that we're, we're making tonight, or at least we're talking about tonight, is building a relationship of love, we have to say, okay, what then are we talking about love? And so in that article, I went on to differentiate between romanticized love versus biblical love. And romanticized love, which is the kind we see about in, you know, romantic rom-coms, romantic movies, and, and popular literature, and sitcoms, and whatever, romanticized love is really, if you, if you really studied and look at it, it's primarily an emotion of self-actualization. Um, romanticized love is a feeling of desire, acceptance, and longing but that longing is really for my fulfillment in you. So if I feel that romanticized love with someone and I say to that person, I love you, what I'm really saying is I love the way you make me feel. I love uh, that you make me feel special, desirable, attractive, inspired, moved, or whatever it is. And the things that that love may make us feel are not necessarily ignoble. They may be noble things. They may be altruistic desires and so on. But really, it's what that love is about is what you do for me. Okay, so you, you may remember, I forget the year. I think it was maybe 97, 96, 97. There was a movie that Jack Nicholson was in called As Good As It Gets. As remember this? Anybody ever seen this? No? Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. So it was, it was. I think, I think they actually won a. There were a couple of Academy Awards that went for that movie, but there's this scene. Um, so Jack Nicholson plays uh, this character by the name of uh, what is his name, Melvin, I think. Um, I wrote it down. He plays uh, Melvin Udall, 
And he's sitting at a table in this cafe, and he's professing his love to Carol Connolly, who was played by Helen Hunt. And so he, he's in a kind of a babbling way, you know, this sort of Jack Nicholson way. He's sort of going back and forth. He's trying to express to her the depth of his love for her. And they're sitting at this table, and Helen Hunt is kind of leaning in and listening. And, and then and Jack Nicholson's character, he, as he's fumbling around and he's trying to express this love, we have this kind of pause and kind of the, the, the turning point of the whole movie, the quintessential expression of love. And what he says to her in this, in this moment where everything slows down, he says, he's expressing his love. He says, you make me want to be a better man. Anybody remember this? You remember that, Marsha? So he says, you, you make me want to be a better man. And then, and then the camera kind of zooms in on Helen Hunt and, you know, playing her character. And, and she's so deeply moved by this, right? It's just absolutely moved by this. But what Melvin is, is expressing is not really about her. It's really about him, how she makes him feel, how she motivates him, how she inspires him or whatever. And so, again, with romanticized love, I love you because of what you do for me. I love you. You make me happy. That's that's romanticized love. I love you. You you make me feel beautiful. I love you. You make me a better person. I love you. You give me joy. Now, this, by the way, is why romanticized love is so fickle, right? Right? Because as soon as you stop making me feel that way, then I don't love you anymore. As soon as I no longer feel special around you, as soon as I no longer feel beautiful around you, right? as soon as I no longer feel unique or whatever it is, then that love fades. Because, again, that that whole romanticized love that we see everywhere we turn is really about self-actualization, me kind of becoming the best version of me, with your help, and that's why I love you. But true love is actually a theological exercise. It's a theological enterprise. In order for us to understand what love is, we have to first understand who we are, who God is, our creator, who we are in relationship with him. And if our view of love is not shaped by God's view about creation, humanity, sin, sex, pleasure, salvation, then love becomes strictly subjective and really arbitrary because you can define it in any way. And, and then and when it's arbitrary, that means it's constantly being redefined by cultural trends and movements and so on. So if you love somebody in that romanticized way, because of how they make you feel, it's not going to last very long because they're not always going to make you feel that way. In fact, there are times when they're going to make you feel, person going to make you feel unhappy and not beautiful and not fulfilled and frustrated and angry or whatever it is. But if we actually look at what God says about love, so if we want to know what God is, how does God define love? What does he say about love? If we look at God from that lens, then our understanding of love has permanence and really sort of an ever-stable locus. In other words, love actually means something, and it means something in perpetuity. So the Scripture suggests we don't even know what love is apart from theology. In fact, John the evangelist wrote in 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. 
And so really what God is saying is the only way you, now he, we have all the commands in Scripture to love one another and your husband to love your wife and so on. But God says the only way you really know what love is is by looking at the, what I've revealed to you. And here's the perfect revelation of love. It is Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. The Apostle Paul also presents sacrifice as a key element of biblical love. He instructs us to love even as we have been loved by God. And how did God show his love for us? Paul says, by sending his son to die for us while we were yet sinners, Romans 5. So here's what we conclude from this, and and we're going to make this very applicable here in just a minute, but biblical love is very different than romanticized love. Now, it too is a strong, intense affection. Sometimes I read biblical scholars, and in order to make sure they're, they're separating biblical love from romanticized love, they'll say something like, well, biblical love is purely a choice, right? But there is, a, there is an element, of course, of, of, of sort of white-hot intensity, passion, whatever it is. Biblical love is still strong passion. It's not as though it's, it's passionless. And it's still emotional, but, and this is key, biblical love involves emotion, but it is a passion for another's good. A passion for another's good. To love someone in the example of Jesus is to have a deep desire to see that person experience what's truly best for him or her. Not necessarily what that person wants, not necessarily what that person thinks they need, but actually what they, what they really need. To borrow an expression from John Piper, true love, to truly love someone is to make much of that person. So I want to look at the explanation of biblical love that John gives in 1 John. So I'm going to read 1 John 4, 7 through 12, and then, well, actually most of, the first, of these 15 verses. John says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God or does not know God, anyone who does not love, rather, does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we, ought, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have the confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, it, with that, in, in that context, the context of biblical love defined, uh, this, is what, this is how Paul Tripp defines love in this book, and it's this. Love is willing 
self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation. So let's break that down and show how that works in marriage. First of all, it is willing. Love is willing. Now, how do we know that love is willing based on the example of Jesus? Well, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. If the example of love is Christ laying down his life, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. When I was, um, when God first saved me and my mom and my sister, roughly the same time, went from not being in church to going to church in downtown Dayton and right in the heart of the city and urban center. And and uh, the church had two pastors, a sort of a preaching pastor who uh, who never really met with people, but he, he was, was a terrific scholar, great preacher, writer. And then the assistant pastor who did all the, did all the shepherding and meeting. He also led worship on Sunday. He was, and he was, he was in his, he's dead now. He was in his late sixties then. And he had this golden voice. I mean, just, uh, he was a former boxer and brawler, but he had this unbelievable voice. And, and he would say, every once in a while, he would sing this song. I don't, I don't know who wrote it. It's an old song. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. And this is, this is absolutely true. No one, Jesus wasn't a victim where he had no recourse. He could have called 10,000 angels if he wanted to. He, so true love is willing. It's willing. It, no, you can't force someone to love you. No one can force you to love them. It requires a willingness um, the second phrase that's critical in that, in that definition is, is willing self-sacrifice. Um, true love, biblical love, demands sacrifice. There's actually no such thing as love without sacrifice. You cannot love without sacrificing. Love calls us beyond the, the borders of our own comfort, our own wants, our own desires, our own feelings, calls us to be willing to invest our time, energy, money, resources, emotions, everything for the sake of someone else. So true love requires sacrifice because it will move us beyond what's comfortable. And if you love someone, you have to go there. My sister is a brilliant uh, woman. She's like you know, the, the genius type, and she's incredibly bright. She was working on a master's of social work at a very se- a secular liberal university, and um, and during that time, I was also studying for, for a graduate degree in theology. So we had, we had some. And it was a very humanistic bent where she was coming from. And I remember saying her saying to me one time, this was partly because of the training and again this very humanistic uh, education track. She said, "You know what? I'm at the point now. I will. I refuse. I will not do anything that makes me uncomfortable. I will never do anything." That makes me uncomfortable. Now, you know, I guess on one hand, you, you know, maybe you say, okay, you know, that's courage or whatever. But what I said to her is, then you're not going to be able to love anybody. Because you, you can't love someone and say, I'm never going to be made to be uncomfortable. Because love demands sacrifice. There's no love without sacrifice, according to even the biblical this definition. Now, here's the next phrase that, of that definition. For the good of another. So, over and against romanticized view, which is all about my own benefit, okay, biblical love is actually love for the good of another. And we see this, 
you know, of course, most arrestingly, most beautifully in the love of Jesus, who endured the cross, yes, for the joy set before him, but because of his love for his people. He said, I've come not to serve, be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. It was the ultimate sacrifice made out of the ultimate uh, demonstration of love. Uh, the final phrase in that definition is, that does not require reciprocation. Real love isn't motivated by the so-called return on the investment, but by the joy we take in the beloved. This is so important. If you just love someone, or you say you love someone, for what they can do for you in return, that's actually not love. That's just looking for our own self-interest. True love, biblical love, is looking out for the other person, pouring yourself, giving yourself for the benefit of the other person because of the joy you take in the beloved, the joy you take in the person that you love. Uh, Now, what does this actually look like in marriage? Well, so in the section of the book, uh, Paul Tripp gives 22 demonstrations of this type, of how this works out. It's a section called Marital Love in Action. And it's, it's how does this work out. Now, we're not, we don't have time to go through all 22. Um, but I just picked out seven or eight sort of, I don't know, applications of this, the way that this shows itself in, in marriage. So let me, I'll just give you these seven or eight, and we'll talk through, through them and, and be done. If you want to read the other 14 or 15, you can, you can pick up the book. Here's the first one. Love is being willing to have your life complicated by the needs and struggles of your husband or wife without impatience or anger. Willing to have your life complicated by the needs and struggles of your husband or wife without impatience or anger. So, so it's no secret, right, that men and women are different. And Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, says toward the end of Proverbs, uh, says, look, there are a lot, you know, he understood a lot, but he said there are some things I just don't understand. I just, I just can't get. One of those is, how does an eagle soar through the air? How does a snake slither along the ground? And how does a man, and how do a man and woman get along? So he said, I don't understand it. This is the wisest man to ever live. I don't understand it. Men and women are different, different personality types, different bents. And of course, I mean, I'm painting broadly here. I know all women aren't the same and all men aren't the same, right? But, but there are differences, and it makes it so it's, it becomes challenging to navigate through certain things. There, there are things that, that really bother me, really bother me. They, thankfully, they don't bother Janine, and I'm really grateful for that, right? I like to be around people who drive fast. People who drive slow bother me. Janine's not bothered by that, thankfully. Um, there are things that, that bother Janine that don't bother me. When you... When you put two people together, two centers of different genders, which is, of course, God's design for marriage, it's going to be, it's going to cause challenges and struggles as you try to make sense of things together. And one of the things that we commit to in love is I, I'm, I'm willing to have my life complicated because I know I'm going to complicate your life, and I want to share your needs and your struggles, and I want to do so to the best of my ability without being impatient or anger, angry. Here's the next commitment. Love 
is the daily commitment to resist the needless moments of conflict that come from pointing out and responding to minor offenses. This is one of the ways that biblical love manifests itself in the way in how we deal with each other. A daily commitment to resist the needless moments of conflict that come from pointing out and responding to minor offenses. Now, I was just talking to another pastor from a different state yesterday afternoon, and he was talking about some frustrations he was having, and I said, you know, remember, the Christian life is about living with tension. It's living with tension in so many areas. But here's one of the areas of tension. We have in the Scriptures the very clear instructions to, to deal with conflict, you know, Matthew 18 and Matthew 5. Matthew 18, if we've been wronged, we are to go to that person with a sense of urgency. Matthew 5, if you know that someone else has wronged you, God says, look, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here uh, fairly loosely, but God says, look, don't, don't worship me now, worship me later, right? Don't worship me, go get this thing taken care of. So, so there's a sense of urgency with which we are commanded to resolve conflict. If you've been hurt, you've been offended, whatever. But then you also have, talk about tension. You also have in 1 Peter, Proverbs, other places, we're commanded, we're, we're, we're told that love covers a multitude of offenses. So here's the tension. If I'm offended, do I go to that person? And say, look, you wronged me. You offended me. Or do I let love cover this, right? There's tension there. I mean, you know, there's some guidelines on how to do that, right? One of those is, you know, is this something that you, you're going to be able to get over or you can't get over, right? That's, a, that's a one. Is this a, an offense that's going to bring harm or disrepute to the body of Christ? But we have to ask those questions. Okay, is this something I can get over? And as it relates to marriage, there need to be way more things in the category of I'm going to let love cover this than in the category of, you know what, I need to sit down with you and show you your fault. Because when you put two sinners together with different backgrounds and so on, you, you could spend all your time just showing each other the other person's fault. Who wants to live like that? I don't want to live like that. Every conversation's about showing each other the other person. That's miserable, right? So, so we let love cover it. You know, I do way more wrong, bothersome, offensive things against Janine than she does against me. But most of the stuff, she lets love cover. And so, so one of the commitments we make is we're not going to bring up those minor, those, those, we're going to resist those needless moments of conflict that come from pointing out and responding to minor offenses. And part of it's also the way, you know, part of it has to do with the way you, you're, you know, grow up and the way you're trained. And, you know, my family for several years with a single mom, we were really poor. And so, like, whenever I would get a bowl of cereal or whatever it was, I always would close up the box, smash down the bag to keep it fresh, right? Well, nobody else in my family really cares about that, to be honest with you. So the box of the cereal, and no, Janine does, I don't be fair to her, but the kids don't. The kid, the cereal boxes are already always open, you know, bags are oh, That drives me crazy because I, I like my stuff to be fresh, you know, and I want to try to preserve it. And, uh, but it's like, do I really want to every day, you know, follow behind? It's, 
hey, you left, you know, you left the Cocoa Puffs open again. That just sounds miserable. So you're making that commitment not to really dwell on those minor things. Um, all right, here's, the, here's the, the third one of the seven or eight. Love is the daily, oh, I just said that, didn't I? Sorry, here's the next one. Love is being more committed to unity and understanding than winning or being right. And can I tell you, because I love you and you love me, I've struggled with this. I really have. Because I come from a very, I'm a very I'm a competitive person. My family, my, my, my mom, my, my sister were, were very competitive. My dad's very competitive. And so it's taken the Lord just absolutely smiting me in love over time for me to realize it doesn't matter about winning. Who cares if I'm right? You know, who cares if I can show that I'm right? Does that really matter? And then you complicate matters by, so I come from a, a loud arguing, in the true sense of the word, pick your side, debate, a debating loud family who likes to argue. I married into a family that hates to argue over anything. And in fact, even if you just say, if, my, if one of my in-laws says to me, I really like this movie, even if I hated it, I don't even say anything because I know that's going to be, it's going to bother him or her because they don't like to disagree or argue. And so we had these two, we had a major clash come in because I wanted to argue about stuff. I wanted to argue about dumb stuff. I wanted to keep on about dumb stuff. And so one of the commitments we make is one of the realizations that we come to is, look, it's way, way more important to, be, to come to a place of unity and understanding than it is to win or be right. Because it's, re- it's not really, the, what's the point? Is the point really to beat, you know, win against your spouse, you know? So you've got the winning record. It's not, my son and I, my oldest son, we, there was a while we were playing Connect Four just all the time. I don't know, we got in this, I don't know, this kick or whatever. So we're playing Connect Four constantly. We play game after game after game after game after game, and then we not see each other for a while, then play a bunch of games. And the last time I saw him, he said, you know, you know, you understand, Dad, that, that our overall record is 274 to 105, don't you? I'm winning. Like, who, like, how would you, are you keep? how could you possibly have that record? How do you know how many games you've won against me? I mean, that was way, it was way lopsided. I'm, I'm the overall winner, I'm sure. But, I mean, like, he's got this record, and, and I mean, we, we laugh about it and stuff, but, like, do you want to have an ongoing record against your spouse the number of times you've won? There's no joy in that. There's no joy in that uh, whatsoever. Here's the next one that, uh, that Tripp says. Love is a daily commitment to admit your sin, weakness, and failure, and to resist the temptation to excuse, deny, or shift the blame. Now, this is, again... You know, John talked about this in week two and, 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 and very eloquently explained how this rhythm works. But I think there's, I think in a marriage, I think in a marriage where biblical love is being manifested and there's humility and Christ is king and treasure and so on, there should be the regular dialogue one to another. I'm sorry, I was wrong. I was wrong. Here's, here's how I wronged you, and I'm sorry. And I'm not talking about just sort of, there's, almost everybody is willing to say, almost everybody's willing to say, you know what? Yeah, I'm a sinner. 
I'm messed up, I'm screwed up, I'm jacked up, whatever. But that's not really saying anything. I'm talking about specificity. I'm not just saying, yeah, I'm, I'm a messed up person. Because that, that's not taking any ownership of anything. I'm talking about saying, yeah, you know what? I was really rude to you, and I'm sorry. I lashed out to you in anger, and I'm sorry. I was, I was sarcastic. I was demeaning. I was, and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. It is the, the, the lad, what, sine qua non, that without which there cannot be, of all apology and repentance, is the phrase, I am sorry. It's a regular part of the rhythm. I'm sorry. Um, okay, here's uh, another one. Love, oh, I'm saying love means being willing when confronted to examine your heart rather than rising to your defense. Now, this doesn't mean that you, you must always say, I'm wrong, if you don't believe you're wrong. Janine and I went out to Buffalo Wild Wings with another couple, and I don't know how many wings we got. Got a bunch of wings. We got a notification that our order was ready. We had to go pick it up at a window. So we go up there, and and it wasn't ready. So this other husband and I are talking, and he was talking about some some struggles that they were having in their marriage. And he said, you know what? I've gotten to the point where I just always say I'm wrong, and I just always apologize whether I think I'm wrong or not. And I said, but doesn't that lead to bitterness? He kind of paused for a minute, and he said, yeah, actually it does. It does lead to bitterness. I'm not saying that you just always, that's the difference between, I talked about this four months ago, and I sure don't expect you to remember it, the difference between therapeutic forgiveness and and biblical forgiveness. I'm not just saying you just always say, yeah, I I was wrong. It's my fault, whatever. I'm, I'm the wrong person. But I'm saying there needs to be the willingness when someone comes to you, when, when your spouse, when your wife, your husband comes to you, to, to say, okay, well, let me, yeah, let me think about that. And let me, let me pray about that. And, yeah, I, I need to really, I, let me take seriously what you're saying. Now, you may go back and say, you know, I'm not really sure if that's right. And you may go back and say, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And, 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 you know, Janine has come to me in love and humility before and said, you know, I feel like that was spiteful or I feel like that was, that was demeaning or I feel like that. that was, and, you know, of course, the first impulse is you want to be defensive, right? But there have been plenty of times when I've had to think about it and I've said, yeah, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. It's a willingness to, and Janine's way better at it than I am, by the way, but it's a willingness to to recognize, to at least be willing when confronted to consider. And it's kind of this, this here's the, if you want to put it in a phrase, it's, it's adopting the, the practice or the disposition of being self-suspicious. Self-suspicious. So someone comes and you immediately be, have this, this is your natural, in, or not natural, supernatural, Enabled by the Spirit of God inclination. Okay, you know what? If you say that about me, that's probably true. I'm going I'm to be suspicious of myself. Now, again, you might think about it and pray about it and wrestle with it and say, no, I don't, I don't know, I don't think that's right. Or you may come back and say with the Spirit's help, yeah, I think you're right on that. All right, uh, here's um, another one, and we just got a couple more here. Love, 
means being unwilling to do what is wrong when you have been wronged, but to look for concrete and specific ways to overcome evil with good. I know where this comes out of, where this concept comes out of in the Scriptures. Romans 12, right? Over, you know, do not return evil for evil, right? But, over, but return uh, good for evil. And so it's this notion of, yes, you have, you've clearly been wronged. Now what are you going to do? Well, you can return evil wrong for wrong. Or you can say, God, I want to return wrong for wrong here. I really, really want to retaliate. But will you help me be proactive and creative in showing love for my spouse? Will you give me the ability by your spirit to actually show love rather than to lash out? And again, it you know, takes a supernatural work of God. How did Jesus exemplify this? You know, of course, you know, he's falsely accused on the verge of being killed, betrayed by his closest followers. And what are we told in the Gospels? Yet he opened not his mouth, did not retaliate. He did not uh, go after, though he had every right to. He didn't uh, do that. Okay, here's a, 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 the second to last one. Love means speaking kindly and gently, even in moments of disagreement, refusing to attack your spouse's character or assault his or her intelligence. You know the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never help hurt me. It's nonsense. It's absolutely nonsense. In fact, it's the words that hurt much deeper than the physical stuff. I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood where we played, we played full speed tackle football, sometimes in the street, you know, and I'm not trying to be all hard or anything, but I'm saying, you know, we, we just... I mean, we played. We played, and we tackled each other. We didn't have any pads on. We we just did. I broke a broken arm three times. You know, dislocated stuff, and and you know. But I don't even really. I don't ever think about that stuff now. But I do still remember some things that have been said to me over the years, and so we're being very careful, recognizing that, you know, the word our words can really hurt, and and I think. That's even magnified in marriage because marriage is supposed to be, as was talked about, as Pastor Adam talked about so well last week, this is where trust is fostered. This is where you put yourself out there. And so this is where words really, uh, really sting. And so it's, it's the spirit-enabled ability. It only comes from the, the ability of the spirit. When you're in the middle of a disagreement, um, to, in the, if I'm, I'm paraphrasing Ephesians 4, to attack the problem, not the person. So, okay, what's the, what's the problem? What's the disagreement? What's the issue? I'm not going to attack you. Let's go after the disagreement. Let's go after the issue rather than me saying, well, you're this or you're always that or whatever. So that's, uh, one, of those other, that's one of those other commitments. Here's the final, the final commitment here. And this is, again, this is like number eight out of the 22 that Trip offers. Love is the willingness to have less free time, less sleep, and a busier schedule 
in order to be faithful to what God has called you to be and do as a husband and wife. This goes under that category of sacrifice. And when I was in seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, I had Hebrew, the Hebrew language at 730 uh, in the morning, three days a week. And Janine would work 7P to 7A at the hospital as a nurse, cardiovascular, cardio recovery. Am I saying that right? ICU, whatever it was. And she would get home at 725, and I would rush out the door to go to my Hebrew class, and I would hand her for a while. It was one of our kids, and then it was both of our kids, because we had another kid during that process. There's not a lot to do in seminary, so, you know, you get a lot of free time. But no, that's a bad joke. Um, we, you know, we just kept having kids. But uh, so she would work all night, come home. I'd run away to class. And she couldn't go to sleep. How could she sleep? We had a nine-month-old. And later we had a two-year-old and a one-month, whatever it was. And that was because she was making the sacrifice so that I could do what I believe God was calling me to do and us to do. Um, it means that one of the commitments that you, you make is I'm willing to have less free time and I'm willing, and I'm willing to have less sleep and a busier schedule. And, you know, you're, no one else in this room I don't think is, is in, he, in Hebrew class or in seminary, but, but it, here's what it may mean. It may mean, you know, I know some of you guys get up at 4.30, right? It may mean that you have a disagreement or an argument at night and you really want to go to bed so you can get up at 4.30, you know, um, but you say, I'm really tired right now and I don't, I don't want to stay up, but, yeah, I'm willing to talk about this. Let's talk about this. Less sleep so that you can pursue reconciliation, which is at the very heart of God. It may mean that because you know that God has called you and all of his disciples to be disciple makers, it may mean that you're at 9 o'clock, you're at a coffee shop, and you're talking to someone, trying to help guide and pray for and develop and shape and encourage someone, when you'd really be, you'd rather be back at home, you know? You'd rather, I meet with people all times of the day, but I, but I really don't like it if they say I can only meet at 6 a.m. I'm just being honest with you. Say, so do we really have to meet that early? Can't you have lunch at 8 or something? Or breakfast, or rather? So, I mean, whatever it is, it's, it's, you say, okay, I'm willing to have less free time, less sleep, less whatever, because I know this is what God's called us to do, and I know I want to pour into our marriage in a loving way so that we can, can experience the intimacy, so that we can, wrapping this lesson up, so that we can build a relationship of love, continue to build a relationship of love.